How's it going, guys? Pretty good. Nice. Pretty fine. Yeah, Eden and I were just chatting about uh, how the commodification of all of the different kinds of uh, entertainment that are popular these days, podcasts, streaming, YouTube, etc., is experiencing this this weird thing where they they kind of get too big to to be one coherent market anymore, mm-hmm. and then they split into a primary and secondary market, and then there develops like a kind of tension. Uh, uh, between them, especially with like these big YouTube production companies that have to hire like you know a couple dozen people just to put on their tabletop role playing game or whatever. Mm, interesting. <laughs> like, oh yeah, those critical grumps. role, and then there's like tens of channels that all they do is repost critical role highlights and analysis. <laughs> uh-huh. It's like what's what's happening here? Like this used to be a D and D podcast, and now it's like this whole production. Yeah, it's an industry. Yeah, everything can become an industry. Makeup. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. There's definitely that weird vibe when you watch like a Jake Paul video or something and it's like really highly produced but really yeah. stupid. And it's like, <laughs> this is just becoming curated stupidity and not like genuine stupidity put on the Wait, internet. Is he the guy that went to like the um, suicide forest in Japan? Yeah. And That's he's his like, brother. Uh, is it? I really can't. I always get Jake and Logan Paul mixed up. <laughs> like, who was the first one who was into boxing? Was it Jake? Logan. It was Logan? Okay. Or I don't remember. Yeah. I feel like there should be more Paul brothers with really generic white guy names. Like there should be a Tyler Paul. Brett Paul. (laughs) There aren't enough Pauls. Get me more Pauls. More Pauls. Yeah. Speaking as a John Paul. I really appreciate that. (laughs) What's that new Simpsons meme where it's like my favorite Simpsons character was like Yandel. There's just like that weird yellow guy that they made up (laughs) pretending he was in the Simpsons. I think it'd be cool if Sean Paul was a Logan Paul's brother. (laughs) (laughs) has like shitty white face paint on and he's like yeah i'm i'm logan paul's brother but he's like really uh, (laughs) really from an island (laughs) (laughs) he's like put up man (laughs) the mask and is like psych i'm actually sean paul (laughs) what's his big song the light song yeah it's it's, give me me delight it's very catchy oh Oh, temperature (laughs) temperature yes From the Trinity. I had to look it up. I feel embarrassed. Um, <laughs> it's very catchy, but then when, when you try to remember anything about yeah, it, I it can't like remember a single li- I can't remember <laughs> a single lyric from it. It's like a dream. You had a dream about a, about a track. And- oh, yeah. <laughs> I got the right stuff, baby. I'm turning you on. I know, yeah, I, know, I know that song. I just didn't know it's called Temperature. <laughs> Why didn't you say that instead of Temperature? I couldn't think of how it went. Yeah. <laughs> Like an AP test question, like name this song, and then they play the song, and you're like, "Fuck, I'll never get it." Oh no, girl. Well, uh, I guess I should probably intro the show at some point. <laughs> um, hello. To, well, hello, everybody. <laughs> welcome to Beep Beep Lettuce, uh, your favorite <laughs> show about weed memes and communism. Uh, we're here with John, Chris, and Bryn, three of the hosts. And we also have a very special guest whose voice you might have heard, Eden Coopermintz, editor-in-chief at Heavy Blog is Heavy, co-host of the Death Sentence podcast, which is a show about books, capitalism, and heavy metal, co-host of Anarchy SF, and somebody I've been friends with on Facebook, uh, thanks to the weird Facebook memosphere for going on a, a decade now, like seven or eight years. Yeah, something like that. Wow, it's been that long. That's, that's hard to think about. 
I know. I did the math on it recently, and I was like, well, if it was roughly 2015, then yeah, seven years. Yeah. And like, I think we met outside of it, but then a lot of our interaction is in the Facebook group that spawned this podcast. That's how it worked, right? The Facebook group was first, and then it suddenly had mm-hmm. a podcast. Yeah, so yeah. That's yeah. a really lame Facebook joke about the, <laughs> the beep, beep no, group no, no. and the podcast. Now, to be clear, the group didn't exist until the podcast was out, but the page... That's right. There yeah. was a Facebook page <laughs> called Beep Beep Lettuce yeah. that John and Todd ran. Got it. Mostly. Got it. And, and that, I just tried to I tried to sandwich it in there. I was like, okay, I have this successful page. Let's launch a podcast and then <laughs> let's not even be an, entirely clear about the relationship between them. Cool. And uh, right. I thought I think that generated a really fruitful uh, area of like a lack of information that still to this day produces funny jokes. <laughs> that's, how, that's how you uh, create lore and, and mythos and then you can sell that, put it on a t-shirt and sell mm-hmm. books about it and stuff like that. That's Which is, well, well, as, as capitalists, that's what, what we we're do. trying to do. <laughs> as Marxist capitalists, as, uh, as a lot of people have, have uh, commented on, BP Bledis is an excellent example of what's called a mixed economy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you see, you got the politics of the the show that's Marxist, but then the politics of the meme page that sells the T-shirts that's strictly fascist, liber- libertarian that's capitalist. Fa- yeah. <laughs> right. yeah, the store is fascist. Mm. Uh, well, yeah, the, uh, and then the group is a narco-Bidenist, right? That's yeah. right. Yeah, there's it's, <laughs> that a, it's real a thing. Fascist yeah. <laughs> Duganist group. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, but I guess before we get too much into it, before we we uh, we start watering this um, fertile ground of of how the the performance economy turns us all into tiny little micro capitalists, I wanted to ask Eden: Is there anything you wanted to start us off with, or any any background you wanted to give our audience before we we rolled on in? Um, you gave me a pretty good introduction. I think you know, in the last um, ever since I took over. Heavy blog, which wasn't named by me, by the way, if anyone is laughing at the name. <laughs> um, I always thought it was a good name, personally. Yeah, it's pretty I mean, good. It, yeah, it was started by a guy called Jimmy out of Kentucky in 2009 when he was in college. And then I, I took it over um, maybe five or six years later when he had a kid, basically, and had to step back. Okay. But ever since then, I've been thinking about and, and writing and giving talks about, you know, um, metal, obviously but also science fiction nice. and fantasy and political imaginary and stuff like that. And I think that coincided with my, I was always a leftist, right? Um, mm-hmm. But then it kind of coincided with my more political awakening towards uh, communism and, and being more on the left and sh- shit like that. One caveat, maybe for the people listening, I let's get it out on the table. I live in Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm an Israeli. Well, we live in America. Yeah, talking so. to three <laughs> Americans. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So whenever I say that, I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm like, oh, yikes, Israel, it's so, you know, bad. It's such a bad state. And then I realized that most of my friends live in America, which is... We're at least half the reason either. Israel is as bad as it is. So. Yeah, exactly. Um, but <laughs> I think that's always... Half. Yeah, it's always it's always colored, like, my perspective or approach to these things because I'm outside of the usual... We talked about how New York owns everything, right? Like how New York owns yeah. podcasts and all that shit. <laughs> so I always feel like an outsider to these kind of trends. Um, that's it. I don't know. That That's my intro. Did you, were you born there? Yeah, I was born there. I spent uh, two years in another cursed country called the UK. Um, <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I, li- I lived there for two years. That's where I kind of got my English and all that stuff, which was really great, right? Because it opened the entire... Um, entire world to me and then i messaged mm. heavy blog on facebook um recommending like an israeli metal band 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I wrote like a couple of paragraphs and they wrote back to me and were like, do you want to join the blog? And that's, that's how that started. <laughs> um, not at all dissimilar to how I joined this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Not, pretty similar. Yeah. yeah. I mean, honestly, I, I find the whole like concept of like not playing Israel. Like there's like the whole thing with big thief recently where people got mad yeah. at them for like, yeah. Yeah. For, I think I think the problem is is that they like wrote a thing about it like defending it, mm-hmm. which and like their the thing that they wrote was really like hand wavy about why Israel is like, not, but it's like if they had just said nothing and played as if it were any other country, mm-hmm. it's like I don't think you can really make an argument that it's like should be played. That it should be visited less than America. Yeah, that's what I always feel. Because that's been a thing for a while that people are like, don't play Israel. And it's like, well, would you say don't play America too? Like, maybe or, we should. or any yeah. other country that has like. Check out my power metal band Vanguard. Our tour is Vietnam, Cuba. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, but also China, like, but only the good areas. Only yeah. the good parts, yeah. But it's also like just such a consumerist way to protest something, right? Like mm-hmm. deny a service or deny a form of entertainment to the mm-hmm. people who live in Israel. Don't get me wrong. There's like a lot of shitty people that live here. Like society here is, <laughs> is very much to the right. I'm not going to pretend that it's like, you know, yeah, uh, for sure. six million communists and then the government are a bunch of right-winged assholes. <laughs> that are like, right. That's not the case. But also yeah. like, okay, let's say that my perspective on this is like, if you're an artist and you don't want to play Israel for your own reasons, then don't. That's perfectly fine. Like, you made a moral decision and that's totally cool. But like, pretending that that's going to do something. Yeah, like exactly. That you, that you helped or like you're pressuring <laughs> the Israeli government. You know, like, who's been trying to pressure the Israeli government? People much more serious than Big Thief, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> are, you, are you telling me Big Thief isn't the new IRA? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I think that not seeing a Big Thief concert is as bad as getting bombed, personally. So sure. <laughs> maybe it will work. If enough bands don't play here, then the military junta that runs this country will be like, you know what? Forget the occupation. Let's just not not do that anymore because I want to see Big Thief live. Like, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, you know, it's like you could do so many things. You could, you could figure out how pills. to even it out. You're like, okay, we will play in Israel, but we'll give the proceeds to a Palestinian solidarity organization or some shit like that. If you think you can pull it off, I don't know how yeah, <laughs> all I mean, of the listen, PR and optics work on that. Yeah, there's like a, another example of how to do it better. Uh, Noning, God, God bless her soul, mm-hmm. uh, amazing artist. She also canceled like a show in Israel, but she also dedicates her life to like African-American liberation and Palestinian liberation through, she has like a, a, a charity that spread, that gives books to children, includes like Marxist books. And um, she does political education, outreach, and she speaks to Palestinian groups. That's how you do it, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if that is part of that work, you also cancel shows in Israel, then 100%. But if you just go, oh yeah, just delete this name off the tool poster, I'm a political activist. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's the thing. It just feels so it just feels so hypocritical and 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 like I don't know. It, I wish they would have some sort of other statement about what else 
is yeah. going on in the world. Well, it's it's such a flashpoint for politics. I feel like if you're going to come out and make a statement about the situation in Israel and Palestine, you have to kind of like also present a coherent view of global politics broadly and like how economics and imperialism work and history. And like, that's a lot to get into for an artist who might just be trying to like post something they think is thoughtful on Twitter. Yeah. Um, but I have, I have another Israel specific question, which is yeah, how hard, it. how hard is it to find psychedelics? In, oh, in that country. Interesting question. <laughs> Very good question. So I, I'll be honest. I, I don't know. Maybe this makes me a persona non grata on this cast, but I'm not a big <laughs> like psychedelic fan. Alcohol is my poison of choice. Okay. Um, but it's it's how I mean in over the last decade, there's been like um, legalization discourse in Israel, mm-hmm. um, particularly for weed. One thing we have going for us there is that Judaism has this whole preventing pain thing in it. Like preventing mm-hmm. someone's pain in Judaism is what's called a mitzvah, um, and there's so all the legal dispensaries in Israel for med- medicinal stuff is run by like religious organizations. Um, oh, interesting! Yeah, that huh, see it as like the religious calling to help people with pain. But from then, f- from there, sorry, we kind of got into it's like decriminalized now. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, don't light a joint in a police officer's face, obviously. Um, (laughs) But if you don't do that and you're not like a big time dealer, then you can get away with smoking weed. The other stuff is um, more found upon, but I'll tell you what's big here. Shrooms. Really? Yes. And that's because after people finish their military service, which is mandatory, Mm -hmm. they go on this big blowout trip um, to like celebrate their freedom. Okay. Does that sound fucked up? Because it is. Um, yeah. <laughs> and one of the, the major destinations is India, Thailand, Vietnam, and Latin America. Okay. And one of the rites of passage is doing shrooms. Right? <laughs> this is like a um, this is like a cultural staple. Like yeah, 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 you, totally. You, and be, like, you get back from your trip, and your friends will ask you, like, "So did you do the shrooms?" Exactly. Did you do the shrooms? <laughs> When you're in high school, there's all these myths, like this guy had a bad trip and he thought he was a dolphin. This is the true thing. He thought he was a dolphin and he drowned <laughs> in the ocean and all these like crazy stories. And then you're a kid, right? Like you're 21 years old. You just spent three years in the military. Most of the people, 99% of the people don't do shit, right? They just push paper around. Right. You, mm-hmm. You're going insane for three years, basically. And then you go on this big blowout. Um, it depends where you go. If you go to Bolivia, you do a bunch of cocaine. If you go to India, you do shrooms and so on and so forth. So it's a big, big cultural thing here. It's like kind of undercurrent, but then everybody's done it. So Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. It, it's kind <laughs> of like not really above board, but if you if you get into a private conversation with some yeah, close friends, exactly. you all end up admitting to each other <laughs> that it happened. Exactly, exactly. Okay. Did okay. you go to the army? So yeah, I did uh I did three years. I have this whole history with it my dad was injured in the um, yom kippur war uh, okay. that's 1973 um and he, what, what happened there well like all of our wars it was actually a proxy war but don't tell israelis because they have this whole, like <laughs> hurrah we beat the, the 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 evil arab nations blah blah but it, it it's oh, a proxy war, but, but it's like the only war that Israel didn't actively instigate. I mean, we passively instigated it because of all the mm. shit we do, right? But sure. Um, uh-huh. Syria, Jordan, and Egypt basically invaded Israel. Um, uh-huh. And then Israel kind of fought them off and um, almost uh, took over um, Damascus. 
and then kind of right. turned around and went home because the Americans told them, "Listen, you guys, you can't, you can't be there." Um, <laughs> anyway, my dad has uh, PTSD, like bad, sure. like PTSD, and I actually had to fight the Israeli army to recognize that and and give me like to not send me to combat duty, basically. Mm. Um, oh wow! Okay, because I was eighteen, able-bodied, had good education, all that stuff. So naturally, what they wanted to do is send me into combat duty um and they don't recognize ptsd it's not an official thing it doesn't exist as far as they're concerned Mm -hmm. um so but i I managed to get them to you know not send me there thank god and what i did ironically is i helped other kids with their enlistment process Mm, Um, oh interesting now this the next part is satire and i'm making this part up it never happened (laughs) um but i i got the chance to like help kids not join the army Oh, Heck yeah. um, like if a high school kid came up to me and said i don't want to join the army the the playbook was get him to join the army right um but mm-hmm. my playbook was listen if you have a, like a legitimate reason not to join which can be a moral one or can be a mental one or whatever then i'll help you so i can I see what i can do to make it easier for you right so mm-hmm. you had to help them play the system a little bit and figure out like what exceptions yeah. were actually going to go through and all listen, that it, it's the same as any of these institutions if you make yourself enough of a nuisance they'll let you go right they don't want <laughs> to enlist someone who is gonna be a mess right yep. who's going to like um just cause cause havoc and be a pain for the system and cost them a bunch of money but there's a way to do it because you could face jail time right Right, if you do it wrong. Yeah, I, I lucked out because uh, I, I found out that being a nuisance is a great way to stay out of institutions uh, by accident because I'm just naturally kind of a nuisance. <laughs> a nuisance <yeah. laughs> just annoying. But it put me on a good path, so yeah. I'm thankful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, think about it like high school. Like, if you just, um, you know, make make noise and cause a bunch of fuss in the classroom, they'll just say, hey, fuck off. Like, we don't want you here. We want the other kids to be sure. successful. But if you get up on a, on a chair and say high school should be abolished right they'll fight you tooth and nail and and try to bend you to their will right so same thing here if you like you go up to the military and you say i don't want to enlist because i morally believe that the idf is wrong you'll be in jail right Um, but if you show up and say if you enlist me i'm gonna give you hell i'm just gonna be a mess and a nuisance then you have a better chance to um dodge the draft as they say that's yeah. so interesting. Yeah, because I, I, it just makes me think of that one, um, the tweet from a Taylor Swift fan account. Yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah, 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 I yeah, just yeah. got back from jail. And they're like, why were you in jail? And they're like, refused to join the IDF law. <laughs> <laughs> so you basically don't really have to go to jail anymore if you want to dodge it. Okay. Um, but also, I mean, this is not an episode about the IDF, although we could do an episode about the IDF. Sure. Um, uh what was I going to say? Oh, uh, you could dodge it if you'd like today, but the way that they get people not to dodge it is through social construction, right? Mm-hmm. Like the reason that still 85%, I think, of of, of uh, high schoolers end up joining the army here is because the propaganda is like intense. Mm-hmm. Even if sure. you're a leftist, by the way, even if you're like um, loyal opposition, right? So most of the parties that you hear about in, in the news, like Israeli labor, and Meretz and all those guys, they're just liberals, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they still think you should join the IDF because here it's like a social project. Mm-hmm. Um, and they even use leftist uh, uh, language for it because, you know, Israel, when it was founded, had a, it, it wasn't a socialist state, but it was definitely like a welfare state and it had the kibbutz and socialists here from Europe and stuff like that. So this language is very, very common to say something like, you should join the IDF because 
of solidarity because everybody mm-hmm. joins and you right. put your shoulder in. It's the national effort. It helps build the country, shit like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are institutions that have like transformed really quickly over the duration of Israel's existence and responded to all of the different like, you know, geopolitical, economic, uh, and, and military events in the region, like over time and, and has taken on all of these characteristics seemingly pretty rapidly. Yeah. I mean, listen, uh, I'm not making this up. I'm just, uh, uh, transliterating from the Hebrew. It's literally called the people's army. Mm-hmm. That's what it's called. Tzva Ha'am, which in Hebrew translates into English into the people's army. So again, it's not a communist nation. It never was. But this right. idea of like the hardship that Israel has endured against all odds, we came to the desert. There was nothing here, by the way. No one here. <laughs> right. No villages. Yeah. No, no, no one here in America either. Yeah. <laughs> a, 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 a virgin land of milk and honey, right? No, I right. Mean, no real people. <laughs> exactly. Um, I mean, the they whole don't, like, virgin matter, land. Kinda. Of, <laughs> yeah. The whole virgin land of milk and honey thing is literally was written about you know, biblical Israel, right? Like that was right. the discourse even thousands of years ago. So same thing here. And then, and then the whole narrative is like, yeah, we pulled together. We, we stood shoulder to shoulder with our brothers and sisters and built this nation out of nothing. And now it's up to us to protect it as the people's <laughs> army. Like it's literally called that. It's hilarious. Wow. It's so yeah. wild. Cause it's like, it was the fifties. <laughs> like it, it just happened like we know we can look at pictures and video like it it's it's like and, and also like it's not rare for fascist countries to sort of take on that sort of language i mean like yeah the nazis you know had like the concept of like the volk like the people you know the yeah the that was very much ingrained as like we the people I mean, even America has like patriots and and like you know national pride and like words around that. Like, it's pretty easy to like take that those ideas of like we're the people and not make it like we are the working people or we're like the the common people, but like the 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 destined people. We're the actual ones who matter. You know that 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 language can be really shifty. There's a reason that that communists and fascists have been the historical enemies that they've always been, because when these two movements were were forming, um, you know, in in the middle of the 19th century, they were both trying to, funny word to use, but to capitalize on (laughs) the plight of the working class. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, The same void left by the collapse of the insane regime. was the void that both fascism and communism tried to tap. And that's why they fought on the streets because they were at the same rallies t- going after the same, the same sort of people. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They were trying to get the support of the same kinds of people. I mean, uh, Mussolini was a, a quasi socialist labor leader for years yeah. before he started uh, developing his form of, of fascism. Yeah. And, and these, these kinds of like really broad uh, social categories, uh, national identities, even, even just regional or cultural identities, they get increasingly mystified over time as, as the initial incidents that led to their development or their formation kind of start to fade into history, even if they are as, you know, as recent as like one normal lifetime ago um and so i i wonder like where does where does this intersect with the the world of of music and and art and metal because you see a lot of um particularly metal musicians will try to draw from extremely broad themes of like history relationships Mm -hmm. i mean war metal and power metal are very good examples of this and like 
to what degree do you think that like having some kind of like established, you know, interpretive structure where you can provide nuance is necessary? And how much do you think it's just like acceptable to be like, okay, dragons are cool. I'm writing a dragon song. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, we, we already went like onto this like working class history kind of, kind of route. And I think it's very important to remember this stuff when we talk about metal as well. And it's something that people don't do. I mean, the question of when was metal formed or who is the, f- the first metal band is a very contentious one. Um, mm-hmm. But one of the most popular answers is Black Sabbath, right? Right. Um, mm-hmm. And not just Black Sabbath, but uh, Tony Iommi's industrial accident, right? So Tony Iommi, um, I'm, I'm sorry if this is too graphic for anyone, but he had the, <laughs> the, the, the tops of his fingers cut off by a lathe, or mm-hmm. I think it was like a metal saw or something. And because he had this um, disfigurement, he invented the power cord, basically, uh, because he would play chords that are more bunched up so he could reach them without the tips of his fingers. And he suddenly got this really muscular kind of tone, and that went on to inform his guitar playing for Black Sabbath. Now, why was Tony Iommi a, a, in a metal factory? Because Not, a, not the music metal, an extra sure. metal, like sheet metal. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, because he was a working class person. His family were working class people. Same thing for... Iron Maiden, like Steve Harris, the bass player for Iron Maiden, another like starting point of metal, supposedly. Mm-hmm. Um, he was an office clerk, right? So like this tradesman sort of background, right? Um, and it's not just the people who started the music, but also the people who listened to the music and consumed it that were essentially, I mean, I'm sure you can find counterexamples, right? But essentially were working class um, people in, in the 60s. Sure. I mean, that's like uh, when when punk music kind of started to come around in the late 70s and early 80s, in a lot of ways, it felt like a response to the fact that metal was becoming less and less of a working class guy in a jean jacket, loves Iron Maiden kind of thing, and more and more of like a glam, heavily produced Hollywood style of metal. Yeah, 100%. But also, I think punk also came from this place of um, actually angst at the working class and its classism. Right, towards mm-hmm. the classes below it. Right, this, right. The whole idea of the squat or in general living in squalor and like eschewing, you know, rigid um, hierarchical forms of family and, and togetherness and belonging and all that stuff that punk is really based on is partly in response to the fact that most of the people who listen to metal went on to have two and a half kids and like right. a suburban house with a lawn and a car. Right? And they were like, fuck this. this was, it was never about this. It was supposed to be you know, about rebellion and freedom and all that stuff. Right. And the metal kind of not, not only sold out, but was always, um, but was always, you know, from this very conservative place. Now, you know, that's tie- a, yeah, it, it's, it's just interesting. Cause when I was uh, involved in a few different music scenes in Pittsburgh over the last uh, 10 years or so, I did notice that in the metal scene, particularly there was a much higher concentration of small business owners and aspirational small business owners yeah. <laughs> than in like DIY punk or emo or math rock or any of the other stuff that was happening. percent. That's the people we're, we're talking about, right? Like we're not talking mm-hmm. about, you know, day laborers or people doing necessarily like completely, I hate the word, but like quote unquote unskilled labor. Sure. We're talking about professionals and skilled laborers and office laborers and stuff like that that, that were drawn. Same thing for Metallica and, and any of these bands. I'm, I'm not going to even mention, you know, Led Zeppelin and, and the whole thing there, you know, with Jimmy oh, Page. Yeah. Potentially well, an industry you, plant. You, 
you get into this whole thing where you're, you're trying to trace like the, the origins of heavy guitar playing back far enough and you come to the realization you're like, the original metal musician was Link Ray and the Ray Men with the song <laughs> Rumble. Sister Rosetta Thorne. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, for sure. But, but, but also like, so I mentioned that Zeppelin, I think it's a really interesting example because this genre of metal music or heavy music has always from the get-go been linked to the imagination right and the mm-hmm. fantastical um and and uh the future and thinking about these things and i think partly because it was a child of the 60s um and it was very much involved in in the 60s uh culture and the 60s way of talking about things but also because a lot of these people um were starting to feel the disintegration of the welfare state and of course, right. in the 80s, when metal really flourished and was officially defined, it was defined with the background of Reaganism and Thatcherism and all that stuff, mm-hmm. and just the unbelievable depression of the 80s. Right? And, and metal became this escape and, and a place to go to when you are completely dissatisfied with, uh, with the way you live your life. So right. even when you're just singing about a dragon and how fucking sick a dragon is, and to be clear, dragons are awesome, <laughs> um, you're singing about how sick dragons are because your own reality is so gray and vapid. And um, I think it was Rob Halford who grew up on an estate housing in the UK. Yeah, I think so. Um, so From like Judas people, Priest. Yeah, exactly. So people mm-hmm. like to go after Soviet architecture. But like, have you seen a state housing that was built in the mm-hmm. '60s in the UK? <laughs> it's fucking... Are the public housing here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's depressing. And again, public housing is good. Build public housing. But yeah. also these backgrounds. You know, obviously you're gonna want to sing about uh, what's the fucking lyric from Painkiller? Uh, laser bullets and uh, you know, ho- metal hawks screaming from the sky and shit like that. Because your actual reality <laughs> is so fucking depressing yeah it's true i mean like you see this all the time i've often thought about this because i'm i'm from the upper midwest and uh there's a lot of like cultural crossover with scandinavia and uh, northern europe in terms of like you know what kind of metal and shit is popular around here and sometimes i think like yeah i guess if you're from like northern norway or northern wisconsin your life around you is just like gray and uniform and drab so much of the time but you're often just like a raw nerve walking around yeah. And it's really, really important to have an outlet for that in, in a way that like feels like it connects with your brain the way that music seems to do so easily. For sure. I mean, think about uh, the name that we cannot not mention here, which is Varg Vikernes, right? Of course. Um, to, in order to murder a guy, so the people listening in Varg Vikernes, Burzum, um, right. murdered Mayhem. his band member. Mayhem, exactly. Murdered his band member, Eronymous, by the way, partly because Eronymous was becoming a communist. Right. Um, in order to go over and like kill a guy who's your friend, you gotta be pretty um, desperate and angry and frustrated and 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 abandoned, right, by the society you live in. That that exactly describes these people, like people who got caught in the wheels of the machine in the eighties, as Scandinavia was starting to actually move away from its social democracy kind of route, something that people mm-hmm. don't like to talk about. Like it's being dismantled just like in the rest of the West, right? All this stuff mm-hmm. is being dismantled mm-hmm. and all these people are being chewed up by this machine and they're looking around them and, and, and going, I'm angry. <laughs> like I'm <laughs> yeah. fucking angry about this shit. <laughs> I have a worse life than my parents, right? Like this sucks. Mm-hmm. Um, and then music becomes an outlet for this um, and becomes a place to a, like I said, escape, to a better world, but B also to um, uh, channel your, your anger 
and your age. I mean, think about the Metallica's first album. You know, Seek and Destroy, Metal Militia, Jump in the right. Fire. Kill them all. Kill them all. <laughs> Battery, Hit the Lights, all this shit. It's a bunch of, by the way, men. We should talk mm-hmm. about that as well, right? The masculinity of the metal movement and its, its um, resistance to becoming less masculine. Um, but, but, but screaming and shouting about how fucking pissed off they are. And then Metallica themselves have said, like, you go to a show and you sing about this shit. And suddenly you have 50 million li- listeners around the world. And like, wait, I didn't... I didn't sign yeah. up for this. Like, I wasn't ready for that. I thought I was just getting together with my bros and blowing off some steam. I mean, like people used to absolutely lose their minds for Pantera. That's the one that I yeah. remember growing up in West Michigan. People were always like, there's a lot of good metal bands out there, man. But if you haven't seen a metal show till you've seen Pantera and like Pantera is a weird example because musically they are the sound of a dude punching through drywall. Like that's what <laughs> Pantera is. Yeah culturally but i think you know um one of the the most thoughtful avenues of exploration is you know imagination and thinking about a different reality and imagining yourself as someone else is always political right right? like who do you imagine who gets typecast who allows who's allowed to imagine again going back to the masculinity question also going back to the question of race Right and mm-hmm. like metals roots in 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 white culture. You mentioned Pantera and the whole thing with Phil Anselmo being right. a fucking white supremacist. To be clear, like Phil Anselmo n- has never read Julius Evola, right? <laughs> yeah. Like he's not your Richard Spencer, you know, theoretical uh, white supremacist. Yeah, he's you're not your... going to see Carl Schmidt on his bookshelf. Exactly. <laughs> like you're not going to see a bookshelf probably. Right, um, <laughs> and not, not 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 in a condescending way. This is just not where this guy grew up. Like sure. he's urban, disaffected person who who um, was fed on this culture of uh, of of ignorance, and he got to get his to to make his voice heard. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, that that brings up a really interesting personal story for me, which is uh, right out of high school, I started dating this girl named Inga. And I moved to Wisconsin and long story that I'm not going to tell on the show, but I met her dad and her dad's name was Arno and he was really chill by the time I met him. But in the eighties, he had been a white supremacist leader of the Northern Hammerskins, which was the largest white supremacist gang in the Midwest out of Milwaukee. And he's exactly, as you say, he was this disaffected white kid from a depressed industrial center in a cold, frozen Northern city. And it took until the nineties when he discovered a rave scene full of different cultures and really people with open hearts and like a really welcoming community before he ever figured out how to turn his life around. And I, I can't help but think that like, you know, for so many metal musicians, you get wrapped up in a band with your bros and your other bros come to see the show. There, it, there doesn't end up being like an opening for someone to come in and be like, Hey, maybe the, this hyper masculine, you know, yeah. fantasy race themed mm-hmm. kind of stuff isn't really a great avenue to be exploring for the rest of your life. <laughs> well, it's just, a, it's, it's so interesting. Um, the way that, this stuff is allowed to exist in a way that like other things aren't, for example, yeah. like hip hop. Like if you're an angry young black guy, <laughs> uh, the CIA kills you. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it's like, the thing is about it is not, it's, it's, it's okay for you to express angry young white man anger, especially when it's not directed towards anything. Like if you listen to the, to metal lyrics, mm-hmm. 
Like, it's very like, I feel trapped. I want to kill people. I, you know, like, I feel like I'm being beaten down, but it's like not really at like, and so we should have a revolution. You know, it's like, there's no answer. It's just like a conduit for letting the pressure out. Mm -hmm. And so the things that are allowed to exist are things that direct your anger towards nothing like towards having moshing and hurting yourself and doing drugs or the things that are allowed are slightly more right-leaning or hard right-leaning. And Mm -hmm. there are some like American examples of people having a bit of a freak out over like, I don't know, death in June, even though that's like satire or whatever. But like, uh, I'm trying to think of other, um, screwdriver, you know, like, punk bands or metal bands that like are outwardly Nazi um, fascist, but mostly it's like kind of a, it's kind of a, uh, what do you call like a a shock value, like thing on the nightly news. It's not really something that people care about in the way that like an actual somebody trying to actually organize people into a better life for themselves, like say Tupac Mm -hmm. Um, or even just like a song called fuck the police where it was like, they were trying to shut down NWA shows. Yeah. Like, it's not like that the was actually FBI like, was investigating that. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's not like that was really like an organizing message in that song. It was just like, we hate the police. And even that's enough to get people angry at you. Yeah. And so it's interesting that like metal is this thing that had the potential and does have the potential. I mean, music in general is funny because it's like people, people sort of, even myself included, like, entertainment is rarely a thing that like could be considered actual politics. You know what I mean? But music in, in and of itself as like something that really actually brings people into a scene and a group like can be really uh, scary to people in power, or at least used to. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I was joking with myself that I should put a timer on my screen to measure the amount of time it takes me to mention Adorno. Um, in this conversation, uh, uh, but I think it's exactly that Frankfurt School idea of like a, a pressure valve, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Cultural mm-hmm. and imagination is a pressure valve. Instead of actually organizing and going to like redacted the oil executives, you can yeah. Uh, yeah. imagine that you're Iron Man, like flying across the world and making everyone safe. Or instead of like actually directing your rage at the people who defunded all public infrastructure in your town in the UK and caused people to like freeze to death on the streets, then you, you, you go to a Judas Priest show and you cosplay as a killer. Right. Um, right. Well, it's instead- like, there's so, so many metal songs out there where it's like the lyrical theme is essentially like the enemy is here. What will we do? And if you kind of interrogate it, you might ask the singer or the lyricist, like who's the enemy. And they're like, we don't know, but they're here. Like, <laughs> you know, and it's like, you don't hear a lot of songs about like the enemy is actually on the throne or in the high tower or, you know, whatever more would make it more like class based i suppose right it's hard for me to even imagine how you would write a lyric that would like actually open people's minds to things i feel like so many people have tried and like rage against the machine just gets ended up played by the cia as torture music so So i think today the to be fair like to metal because at the end of the day i do like the, the music right sure um as a leftist there is a counter movement to this that's happening today that is pretty successful and becoming more successful especially in black metal that is usually the domain of fascists and nazis and all that shit um those uh red and anarchist black metal and um, a bunch of other movements uh 
to do that. But again, to go well, what Bryn said, it's not really politics. Like, okay, there's a UK band called um, Ash Inspire that I really like, and the, in the in the upcoming album, they sing about misogyny and masculinity and like how mm-hmm. it traps them and traps the people around them. Okay, but you didn't actually like talk to people about the roots of misogyny and gave them praxis to like dismantle it and stuff like that. It's still important. And I think it's still important to sing about and talk about. But yeah, you always ask the question like, what's the next step? These uh, guys, one of my for example, favorite, one yeah, of my ahead. favorite bands, uh, Maruda, yeah. are very, um, are very, very. Um, they're from Mexico, and th- their lyrics are interestingly not so on the nose, like cringe, but like very, very much uh, politically. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I want to call them communists, but they're. They're very left, and and I, I think are a really good example of of uh, what John's saying. Well, see, see, if I, I'm a really big fan of when bands say what they mean, but don't say exactly what they mean. You know, <laughs> yeah, Where exactly. It's like, yeah, yeah. You you can't just come out and be like, you know, the government is bad, capitalism is bad, you know, redacted Jeff Bezos, whatever. I agree with those things, but I don't really care to hear them in a song. You need to say something that's going to just get me thinking a thought that has like not really super definite edges, maybe. And then at some point along in the song, it would be nice if it kind of coalesced into a greater narrative or, or a greater kind of like, you know, philosophical idea or whatever you're trying to transmit through your lyrics. This was always my big problem with emo, even like the supposedly sophisticated Midwest emo is they come out, they play the guitar, they sing nine songs about how fucking sad they are. And I'm like, why don't you write a song about like something that doesn't seem sad, like a chair and then make it make me feel really sad. And then I'll be really impressed with the emotional content of your music. You know, (laughs) I think that goes back to the question of imagination. Mm -hmm. Um, and and the way that music at the end of the day, like all of art, speaks to, you know, the way we, to be crass about it, the way we build pictures in our head, right? And right. the way that we think about things that aren't on the surface and, and that aren't obvious to us and are just consumed by our senses. Um, metal, for me, I, I grew up with the genre. It's completely changed the way that I imagine things, the way I think mm-hmm. about the future, the way I think about what's possible or impossible and stuff like that. And like I said, that's inherently a political thing. Like, what do we imagine? What kinds of futures do we build for ourselves? I gave a talk at a convention in Berlin a few years ago about metal's vision for the Anthropocene and climate disaster. Mm. Right? Think about Megadeth in the 80s. Basically, what Megadeth have been telling us for like 50 years is, we're fucked. It's all over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The earth is going to be like a desolate wasteland. Um, war is going to burn every single place uh, on this planet alive. Like That's what they tell us in their songs and their imagery and their album cover and stuff like that. And like, Cattle decapitation not... too. Yeah, cattle decapitation <laughs> yeah. as well. Like, that's not good. I don't like that. Like, I would <laughs> sure. like them to give me um, a, a climate imagination. So there are bands doing it, like Falls of Raos out of, um, I don't remember if Seattle or Washington State in general, okay. um, that are imagining like nature and, and humanity living in different ways. Botanist defines himself. Oh, yeah, himself. Botanist is so They're so good. <laughs> so the guy behind Botanist, he defi- the character that he built, the botanist, is an eco-terrorist. Right, that right. Like yeah, yeah. Sp- spreads strains of like vegetation to kill people and stuff like that. But he's in in his music and his lyrics and, and stuff like that. He's imagining a different relationship that we could have with nature. Right. He's, well, see, he's, that's I, I'm yeah. really I'm really impressed with that from somebody like botanist because I feel like that is 
the the more appealing converse of what a band like maybe Wolves in the Throne Room is doing, where it's 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 a similar like eco anarchic or or stochastic or whatever, however you want to describe that kind of situation. But Wolves in the Throne Room is like deeply pessimist and concerned about like the ruinous effects of our behavior, whereas botanist is proposing that new relationship that you're talking about and maybe provides room to move forward. And listen, this is exactly going back to like when metal was founded. This is exactly the same problem of the psychedelic movement. Right. Right. Like psychedelics Mm -hmm. can be politically, I don't know what's the word I'm looking for, active or meaningful. If you take your trip and you're like, this could all be different, man. I got to add the man (laughs) at the end because I'm talking about the 60s, right? right? Sure. Um, (laughs) We could have like... Bi- biologically enhanced people and we could imagine like a communist society and everybody could live in this utopia and we could all be good to each other um if you do that then psychedelics can be a political tool but as we know what happened to most of the hippie movement was let's just do these drugs and enjoy the carnal the sensual feeling of it and experience and it didn't really coalesce into a into a political movement same thing here right like, and I'd, ar- I'd argue i'd argue that isn't almost entirely because of the cia for sure like no it was the, on purpose, the, it was on the purpose. yeah the history i mean like the lsd was in those spaces because of them mm-hmm. like it, yeah it wasn't like the hippies introduced that as like here's how to be a, a good political leader mm-hmm. for sure 100%. And, and, and then, like you said, the thinkers that actually wanted to do interesting stuff with their experiences from lsd got killed yeah, um, right. yeah. Exactly. Side <laughs> um and they, they 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 released the lsd into this community and then they pruned it to make sure that it only grows leisure right it only grows right. the mm-hmm. pressure valve anybody that was trying to make it into something more serious into something more politically radical got either straight up murdered or <laughs> um just culturally buried but Mm-hmm. It, that's the same thing. Well, the CIA never assassinated any metal musician, I don't think. Um, mm-hmm. But if you look at Wolves in the Phone Room as compared to Falls of Raos or Botanist or stuff like that, you talk about these like mystical experiences and paganism, which we didn't discuss, even though you brought up like the Norwegian ties and stuff like that. Sure. Um, okay, let's say I'm a, I'm a pagan. What do I do with that? Does it stay like wolves are cool? And (laughs) rain is awesome and trees are beautiful, which is wolves in the phone room. Mm -hmm. Or is it like, no, we all have a commitment to ourselves and our community and the nature around us. That's two different lessons that can be um, extracted from the same perspective and the same imagination, right? The pagan imagination. Wolves in the phone Mm -hmm. room are content. Again, great band, right? But lyrically, I agree with you. It's like content to be like the stars, so beautiful we've forgotten <laughs> how to go to the lake and have a yeah. good time whereas force of Raos are like five people are destroying our economies and our planet and our well-being and why aren't we doing anything about it and we should like show them who's boss and shit like that right what is the well, second band falls of Raos. r-r-a-u-r-o-s Falls um, of Raos. So they're not Raus. like explicitly political, I would say, but they have described themselves in the past as anarchists. Although we could talk about primitivism and adjacency to fascism. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a lot sure. of problems in the Pacific Northwest where all these bands come from. Um, I, I got chewed out once on a metal uh, group for saying that um, American Pacific Northwest black metal groups love to describe themselves as Cascadian. 
<laughs> they do? Yes. They Cascadian, do. Cascadian black metal is a subgenre, like a recognized subgenre. I'm like, okay. That just means that just means fascist as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> exactly. So I was like, Cascadia this is, a, is like yeah. a white supremacist thing. Mm-hmm. So I got chewed out for saying that, like, no way. It's there's like liberal no. conceptions of it. There's like leftist, and like most of liberal, the people say liberals are, are fascist. White <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, yeah. yeah. I, I'm in a I'm in a Rhodesian black metal band. It's not racist though. <laughs> uh, it's yeah. normal, actually. Yeah, yeah. apartheid yeah. black metal. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, yeah. it's interesting how every time there's like one of these these styles that kind of emerges in in music or in culture, it it can serve as a, a quilting point for so so many different things. Like you were talking about how we just brushed up against it, but like ecological politics and their affinity for being, you know, appropriated by the left, right, center and everybody else you can think of. Uh and it makes me it, it makes me wonder if it's not a good time to bring up uh Matt Pike. Because Matt Pike, I think, is in many ways the perfect example of a metal consumer, especially an American one. He's he's a he's a dumb as bricks guy. I mean, he, I love him. He seems like a great guy, but he doesn't seem super bright. He listens to the Joe Rogan podcast. He loves like wild, free, associative, uh, you know, conspiracy theories, and has drawn on them for decades in both of his yeah. bands, Sleep and High on Fire. And recently, there was this article in uh, NPR about how he had uh, credited David Ick as uh, an influence at the end of one of his music videos. And David Ick, you know, is a notorious anti-Semite conspiracy theorist who, you know, believed in like weird alien racist conspiracy theories. And I've, I've wanted to get your opinion on uh, a guy like Matt Pike and how we can kind of disentangle the, the almost free associative kind of web of influences that he's operating under. And, and how can we arrive at a point to make a, a value judgment about a guy like like Matt Pike who for many of us myself included uh, was an extremely formative musician and, and provided a lot to our education in heavy music yeah I think it's a really interesting topic um, and luckily for us we can uh, summon uh, Theodore Adorno back into the conversation all right <laughs> um, he wrote a fantastic essay called the stars down to earth where he analyzed an LA LA um, horoscope um, from oh. mm. 1952 to 1953, I think, or 53 to 54. He mm-hmm. was back in the United States um, on a visit. And the, the myth goes that he was looking to improve his English. So he wanted to read something that wasn't too complicated, but that was also colloquial. So he picked up a horoscope. Oh. Um, and then he was like, what is this nonsense? Like, <laughs> how, how do I conceptualize the place of the irrational um, inside supposedly rational societies, right? Like, uh, mm-hmm. like one of my um, professors in my BA said, "How do people read a horoscope and then get on a plane?" Right? <laughs> um, how how does that work? What what is the tension there? Um, and in the stars down to earth, he he formalized this um, theory that would later also influence his writings about anti-Semitism and fascism and and conspiracy theories that. Because capitalism leaves us with a dead and disconnected and atomized reality, mm-hmm. well, there is no connection between me and the world around me. People fill in that gap with astrology right. or magic 
or UFOs or crystals or what have you. It really doesn't matter because those systems give them a connection, right? It, it connects them to the world. The stars are not just dead matter floating around in space. They are active participants in my life and in my right. psychology. Um, the earth is not just something to be exploited. It has resonance and echoes and water has a memory and crystals have an energy and stuff like that. Right, right. So, so that's uh, the first part. Like they, they connect the unconnected. That's why the article is called "The Stars Down to Earth," right? Because they, they bring the stars down to their existence. Mm-hmm. Right, like a, some sec- some divine chain of signification coming uh, from the exactly. outside world. Exactly. But in the second thing that he says, though, like which when is you really, kill really smart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I too, I too am an Elden Ring enjoyer. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, the second point that he makes there, which is really, really smart and important, is. People get it wrong when they look at these um, systems and they say, well, anything goes. There's no standard for truth. You can just talk out of your ass and you will be accepted as a wise man. That's mm. not true. It's mm. not true. There sure? are standards for truth. They're just not the scientific ones. Right? They rely right. not on verificationism. That is, I think A, does A exist? If so, then I am right, which is supposedly the scientific method on a bumper sticker version of it, right? Um, but rather stuff like antiquity or narrative value or how well connected your explanation is to other explanations. Like mm-hmm. if your right. astrology can deal with UFOs and crystals at the same time, then it is superior to an astrology that can't. All of these decide truth. So when you tying it back to Matt Pike, and I will in a second, a more neat way, but like when you go to conspiracy theorists and you say, well, this is all nonsense. You just believe whatever people tell you that doesn't get through because they say, no, I don't. <laughs> no, I don't. I have, mm. I have specific people I listen to. I know they're true. I know they have their own knowledge because X, Y, Z, but because they're speaking a different language than us, we, we just don't, we, we can't talk to them. And, and the last thing, which is really true for Matt Pike is what uh, Adorno called seekership. Um, he would go mm-hmm. to these um, astrology conventions and UFO meetups and crystal mm-hmm. meetups and tarot readings, and he would sometimes see the same people in all of these gatherings. He was like, wait, but those things are in, co- in Congress, right? Like, they don't fit together. Uh, how can you believe in all these different things at the same time? And he figured out that the point was seeking the answer and right. not the actual answer. The point mm-hmm. is the truth is out there, right? That's the point. The point is believing that the truth is out there, like QAnon, right? The point is right. not that mm-hmm. Q is correct. The point is that they're asking for the deeper meaning of stuff that the government does. And, that's and, it, can, ex- and, and it sends you on this, this journey of like spiraling signification where, yeah. where each link in the chain exactly. keeps leading you to multiple other paths that you could, you could find your way down. And once you're six or seven links in the chain deep, it doesn't matter if what you're doing now no longer matches up with what you were doing seven links ago. Exactly. So the, and that, when you read the interview with Matt Pike that NPR um, posted, he's a kitchen sink conspiracy guy. Right. Like he believes in everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, the moon landing was fake. Um, <laughs> this, I'm starting with stuff that I might be able to accept or that I accept myself, right? Sure. Um, moon landing might be fake. 9-11 was an inside job. JFK True. was killed mm-hmm. by the CIA. True. All this stuff mm-hmm. that I'm like as a leftist, hmm, yeah, okay, right? Yeah, you're cool. <laughs> uh, but then it keeps going, right? Like water <laughs> has a memory, aliens built the pyramids, um, and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. It's like he says in the article in, itself, I just like believing in this stuff. 
right? Like, right. give me a theory and I'll probably believe in it. There is one mm-hmm. exception that he makes. Like, he makes it clear that he's, he doesn't um, like QAnon and, and uh, mm-hmm. Trump and all that stuff. Right. Um, he just sees that as stupid, but that's just because it's not his cultural background, right? Like he has no reference. But it's also it's also new, and it it it's uh it's not as I I think what's interesting that one thing you said about what Adorno said is that like it's about seeking the truth, and yeah. that really resonates with the way I have seen people talk about these things, where it's like you see sometimes in people's eyes, someone will say something that is the dumbest shit you've ever heard in your life. And like their eyes will widen and be like, Ooh, Oh, interesting. You know? (laughs) And, and I, I've always, that's always baffled me, but I'm realizing that the common thread there is that it's opening them up to a new puzzle. Mm. Yeah. Like what, like like a new possibility. What they are, what they are experiencing is not what I would call like a, a realization of something, Mm -hmm. which is usually when I make that reaction when I'm like, Oh, when something clicks in your head as logical, they are experiencing the, the feeling I feel when I find a new puzzle in a video game Yeah, Mm -hmm. where I'm like, Oh, I get. Oh, I see what the rules of this game are. Now I can play this game, and I'm excited about that. They're experiencing that feeling for a new type of, you know, are aliens Jews or whatever? Right. Like, like, yeah, <laughs> like, a, like a new explanation that can make the world make sense. Because I think every human's brain is trying to find like a pattern and find a community and find some kind of spiritual meaning to things. Right. They they're not they're not interested in the logistical answer to the puzzle. They're interested in the concept of a puzzle yeah and it's just like and i think the realization triggers like the same if we did a a cat scan or whatever the same chemicals are released Mm. in the human brain but just the rules are different right because we're um as materialists for example we like figuring out how stuff works i don't know how many of you got excited by capital volume one but when the <laughs> equations like line up and you're like oh mm-hmm. this is what linen yeah, costs yeah. um you're like that, <laughs> yeah. that's that's cool they get the same feeling but just not when the numbers add up but when the theory suddenly explains things that they couldn't explain before mm-hmm. and whether it can be verified that is you could go out to the world and check whether it's actually true. It's just not relevant to their frame of reference. That's why people like Alistair Crowley and occultism and they LARP as apologies to maybe potential listeners of the podcast that are mm-hmm. Wicca or witches or whatever. But mm-hmm. that's where these instincts come from. And they're not necessarily bad, just like almost all human instincts, but they can be abused right. very, very easily. Mm-hmm. Um, well, especially because like they 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 don't just not demand like a granular analysis of the way that each one of your beliefs or, or the structures of belief work there. They actually, uh, completely excuse you from needing to do that kind of that detail by detail analysis, which is really freeing for a lot of people. And because it's tiresome, it's hard to sit around and think really closely about something point by point. And that's one of the reasons this was interesting for me is because my relationship to Matt Pike's music has always been what I think the, the opposite of his own relationship to it, where I listen to it for something where I'm like, finally, some real fucking nonsense, and I can just turn my brain <laughs> off. <laughs> yeah, but, but that's a really interesting um, idea that speaks to a, another concept of um, disavowal mm-hmm. um, or uh, ironic disavowal. 
like some of the joy and pleasure that we get out of art and music is especially good for this is that it allows you to experience an idea or a way of life or a perspective, but not actually sign up for it a hundred percent. Like when I listen, I still listen to Metallica's first album. I'm not a violent person. I don't go out with hammers and kill people, but for the duration <laughs> of kill em all, I entertain the notion, but I'm always ironically distanced from it. Right. Right. Now, you would like to assume that the artist is as well. Otherwise, it's, it's icky. Like, why do I care if black metal artists are Nazis? Because when I listen to their music and they go, this earth is a plague and should be cleansed, I'm like, oh, sweet, 40K LARP. But they're right. like, no, dude, we're stockpiling the fucking napalm to do this. Like, we right. want to actually do this. And I'm like, yikes. That's yeah. not what I'm looking for. Same thing with Matt Pike. You listen to Dope Smoker, you're like, I'm not actually a guy on a sci-fi moon um, walking through a (laughs) desert, but Matt Pike is like, no, you are, because your DNA (laughs) came from aliens that uh, populated the (laughs) Earth like five centuries ago, so uh, five millennia ago. So when that disavowal is like, there's a gap there, you're disavowing, you're ironic about it, you're distance from it, but the artist actually believes the stuff that they're writing about, it's, it's awkward. It's, well, what do you uh, what, what do you think about bands that deliberately inject that gap into what they're doing, either through some kind of sarcasm or flippancy or something like that? Like to, to my mind, there's a band called Gnome out of Belgium that does really good stuff, and yeah. they all their songs are about being gnomes, and they wear little red gnome hats <laughs> yeah. with cones, and it's like, okay, I know they don't believe what they're saying. So <laughs> like, in that space, actually, the name to beat is an American band called Neko Goblicon. Um, they are they are fronted by a goblin and he's he's always in character he's always dressed up like a goblin and their songs are about being a goblin um their music is fantastic fantastic Um, i don't like it oh Oh, he's like a goblin but he has like a button-down shirt on so he's like a goblin working they're like a worker yeah 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 yeah, yeah. it's they're really funny um and so it's a thin line to walk right? Like right. taking the irony and putting it out there can work in this case, but you got to be really good at it and really good at not it turning into just navel gazing bullshit. Like look how, look how edgy. That's why I don't like um, Ghost. So right. Ghost, very popular heavy metal yeah, band. Yeah, sucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, famously. Scooby-Doo <laughs> chase music. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I think the music is whatever, <laughs> but what, what I find off-putting is like the personality of of tobias forge that's the real guy yes his last Mm -hmm. name is forge um (laughs) but his personality papa emeritus the third he takes it so fucking seriously like (laughs) makes fans call him papa emeritus and um lords his personality over others and it just doesn't work now can i draw the line between ghost and necrogoblicon no it's an aesthetic thing right um but when i listen to necrogoblicon i feel like we are both in on a joke. Right. And when I listen to Ghost, I feel like I'm making fun of him <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because he took it too far. That's right. That's right? like when I, li- when I listen to Tool, I feel like I'm making fun of Tool. But when I listen to Primus, <laughs> I feel like we're all making fun of Primus together. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that's uh, fantastic. Yeah. There is also a, a sort of different uh, energy when you're listening to someone who really does believe something and you don't but it's okay anyway. And you're sort of like, I'm thinking of a uh, coil. Yeah. Mm. Do you know mm. coil? Yeah. Um, for sure. Coil, coil are gay witches who like 
seem to really believe in like thaumaturgy, you know, like they believe in like magic. Um, and it's like when I, I mean, they're one of my favorite bands, but I don't, I don't really feel implicated in their beliefs. It's almost like cool that you like that. I wish I could believe that too. (laughs) Yeah. Right. I don't know what that would be. I think that speaks again to their skill as an, as an artist, right? That you are exactly able to um, encounter their ideas, but not feel implicated in them. It's a, it's a skill. It's, it's a subtle art and many bands, especially metal bands suck at it. They just, they don't have the heavy handed. They don't have the subtlety to um, really, really entertain it. By the way, one of the best examples of that subtlety is actually Metallica. The people think mm-hmm. about Metallica as this like heavy-handed, aggressive band, but like if you look at the um, discography or the tracklist of Metallica, they've entertained so many ideas in their writing. Like they can write a track about a werewolf, uh, right. wherever I may roam, for example, uh, which is ostensibly about a werewolf, but it doesn't feel about like it's about a werewolf. It's it's about the themes of of werewolf literature, right? Freedom and bestial urges and roaming wherever you'd like and not paying attention to human rules. So they're subtle enough to like convey the thematics of it and not just like beat you over the head with werewolves are awesome, which is like <laughs> true, but also I don't need you to tell me this. And going right. back to Matt, Matt Pike, same thing, like when Sleep was at its best, I think the recent album is fantastic, um, and also High on Fire, mm-hmm. it's not that it's about this stuff. It's not that it's about science fiction or references Dune or whatever. It's about that it gets across those themes in interesting ways. But right. then when Matt Pike steps behind the curtain and goes, no, no, I believe in that stuff, like actually believe in it, it kind of takes away some of the magic that, that's happening between the listener and the artist, I feel right. at least. Well, it's like when I was in high school and I was first listening to sleep and I was kind of trying to pick out some of the lyrics, you know, they're not always super clearly saying. Yeah. And I, I was thinking to myself, like, this is throwing out an insane vibe that like I'm having <laughs> so much fun trying to dissect and pick apart and, and figure out what it means for me. And then when I read the NPR article, I remembered that moment because I felt like I was having the opposite experience where I'm like, I'm getting a very like cringe vibe right now yeah. that is not fun to dissect and is hurting me a little bit to, to kind of pick apart. Yeah. I mean, tying this also back to psychedelics, I think this is exactly that topic that we discussed um, earlier. You know, when you talk to people who are big into psychedelics and psychedelic experiences, you can tell who is doing it for the vibe and the aesthetics of the psychedelics mm-hmm. and is like taking it way, way, way too seriously. And who's like doing the drugs for the, for the experience, for what they provide them on a personal level. And the other shit, the deeper stuff is not, I don't want to say it's a side effect, but they don't see it as like this super serious and super cohesive um, theory. Right. And that right. is more fruitful. That is a more fruitful perspective because when you talk to someone that is very serious about the psychedelic experience, they're, they're kind of a fascist about it, right? They're like, yeah. <laughs> this is what psychedelics mean. This is what it feels like to be on a trip. This is what I saw and what it means. Whereas others are like, these are possibilities, right? 
Well, because psychedelics kind of do the same thing that a band like Sleep does when you listen to them. They introduce all of this insane variety and, and new colors and new tones of emotion and experience and stuff into an environment that, uh, you know, isn't normally prepared to receive those kinds of things. And so I think if you have like a real rigid idea of like, okay, this is what I'm going to get out of this experience, then like, yeah, you said, like you said, you're going to come off pretty fascist about it but like if you're ready to immerse yourself in that variety and learn something from it and and just like let those experiences pass through you and then collect yourself the next day or whatever and not have to worry about making sure that like you're checking every little ideological box to make sure that your experience lived up to your politics or whatever you're you're gonna have such an easier time if, if you're not consumed by that like it's an anxiety, right? It, it, what it what it is is functionally, it's like an anxiety that I'm not doing drugs right, or I'm not listening to metal right, or whatever. <laughs> but that's the same anxiety that I feel when I read Matt Pike, right? Like he downloaded a list of conspiracies off of Wikipedia, and now he's going through the motions of checking them off and saying, "I think this is true." Like, right. okay, man. Like, <laughs> I had I had friends like that, and we're no longer friends because it gets really tiresome um, going down those lists. Yeah, it definitely does. Uh, well, that feels like a good place to uh, put a button on it. Is there anything else that you wanted to address before we close out the episode? I think the last thing that always needs to be mentioned in these spaces that we kind of talked about maybe before but didn't really get sounded here is um, fantasy and uh, mm-hmm. Tolkien. Mm-hmm. Um, this conversation is haunted by the specter of, of Tolkien. Uh, again, Led Zeppelin. <laughs> of talking? Of Tolkien. 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 Oh, that guy. (laughs) That guy. Um, So you can't really separate like a discussion about metal thematics, um, 60s psychedelics, and Lord of the Rings and fantasy and all that shit. Right. Um, Falls of Rauros, the reason that Rauros sounds weird is that it's a waterfall from Middle Earth, right? It's it's in Lord. God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) But but the point here is, is that same ironic disavow. Like, you want to believe that the way these metal artists read Tolkien, Silmarillion, Lord of the Rings, whatever, is with this like distance. Like, I don't like kings. I don't think kings are good. I'm an anti-monarchist. I, it's yeah. sad that I have that monarchy still exists, and I have to be anti-monarchy. Um, so when I read this this stuff, I, I can distance myself from it. But then you talk to a to a power metal artist. It's like, right. no. No, man, kings are we good. Have like, go things, yeah, we have to go back. Return of the king. Yeah. <laughs> things were better when people had swords. I'm like, no. <laughs> they really weren't. But, Fighting but, to the death with a battle axe on an icy hellscape is actually good and advisable. <laughs> That's exactly. what I like and I want. I do yeah. it all the time, yeah. And uh, women dispensing swords out of lakes is actually a good way to run a political system. Right. <laughs> um, so it, it's the same kind of tension between people who approach these things as, like you said, new experiences, new textures, new colors to use as a palette, and people who actually go that step further, like Adorno said, and kind of externalize them and generalize them into a, into a theory that explains why healthcare is bad. Right. right? Like, <laughs> why society is deteriorating. Instead of saying, it's the capitalists, we should stop letting them do whatever they want, it's much easier to say, it's the UFOs, it's the stars, it's the fact that we don't have kings anymore, no one is a man, we don't go on quests, blah, 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 all that shit. 
Right. Um, so what we need what we need to do is is stop talking about how the Shire is full of hobbits and start doing a material analysis of the hobbits' economic conditions. So <laughs> you say you, it, it's a joke, and I agree with you. But also, we could, and there is, there are examples out there of writing fantasy and, of course, science fiction that actually asks, "What if our society looked fundamentally different?" Like, right. what is a society... Ursula <laughs> K. Le Guin. Yeah, also <laughs> Le Guin, Philip K. Dick, Samuel Delaney. We could name right. drop, like, a bunch of these guys. And all of them mm-hmm. did fantasy as well, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fantastical and the science fiction and the weird and all the, these spaces can be tools and vessels for actual analysis and actual thought about the future. But more often than not, again, nefariously, maliciously, I totally agree, like, the powers that be have a hand in making the dumber, less radical versions of this stuff popular. It's not a coincidence that Harry Potter is the fantasy franchise. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. I mean, uh, what do you think Matt Pike thinks about the Hobbit movie? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you probably Who thought knows? the CGI looked gay or something. Yeah. <laughs> more special effects Matt Pike CGI. is the one guy in the world who thinks that one and a half second shot that was clearly shot on a GoPro should have been in the movie and was a good choice. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, they're on the barrels and they're just like yeah. cuts to a GoPro. Yeah, I can still like remember that shot vividly from seeing that movie in theaters. Absolutely. It haunts Man, me to this day. Yeah. All right. Well, I think this has been a really productive conversation. I just want to thank Eden again so much for coming on thank to the you. show yeah, uh, and for me. kick myself in the ass once again for not having him on earlier. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening to BP Bledis. I made sure that this was a main episode so that everybody would get a chance to listen to it. But if you want to hear the really great stuff that we've been doing on the Patreon, you can always go sign up for $5 a month. If you're not in the Discord already, get in there. It's where all the fun conversations are happening. You can it's listen a good to time. Mm-hmm. It's a great time. You can listen to my other show, Work Stoppage, which is about labor. You can listen to Bryn's other show, Generation Loss, which is about movies. And you can catch us sporadically on the Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash Pod. Thank you again, Eden. Thank you, Chris and Bryn. Thank you, everybody. And this has been your episode for the week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.